and I declare the meeting open to the public. Can I remind members the committee meeting will be recorded and broadcast throughout Parliament buildings and online. Today we have got we have six members attending in total currently. We've got four members in the room, myself, Emma Shear in the chair, Mike Nesbitt, the vice chair, Christopher Stalford and Michelle McElveen, and via Starleaf we have John O'Dowd, who is attending in his capacity as Carolyn Collins Deputy, and Paula Bradshaw. And we are awaiting Mark H. Durkin. He hasn't sent apologies. So we have no formal apologies for the meeting. So agenda item two. Today we have got a briefing um, focusing mainly on victims' rights by Sir John Gillan. Um, we're receiving a briefing from the Right Honourable Sir John Gillan, former Lord, Lord Justice of Appeal in the North here, and in 2018 the Criminal Justice Board commissioned an independent review of the law and procedure in serious sexual offence cases. Sir John Gillan led this review. So Sir John, he has... Um, submitted a, a written briefing which you can find beginning at page four of your, your meeting packs. Sir John, I'd like to, to welcome you to the committee this afternoon and, and invite you to begin your briefing. Well, thank you. I think I'm grateful to have the opportunity to address you on the, uh, a subject which has been very close to my heart and my mind for some time. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, perhaps my main relevance today is that I was the uh, author of a report on serious sexual, the wrong procedure of serious sexual offences. And, and that's the relatively narrow remit of my uh, discussion today on the Bill of Rights. Um, as you know, but it bears repeating, that uh, sexual offences are one of the worst violations of human dignity. It traumatises the victims, it traumatises their families, it traumatises whole communities. It strikes at their bodily integrity and self-respect and the most fundamental of human rights. All genders suffered, mainly women but and children, but it's all genders, ages, classes, ethnicities. Um, it's, uh, these offences are committed in circumstances where 89% of the offenders are known to the uh, victims. It's uh, particularly prevalent, dare I say, in uh, marginalised communities amongst the uh, elderly, uh, those with a disability. There was a report in Australia saying that 90% uh, of uh, women with an intellectual disability have been subjected to sexual assault, uh, two-thirds of those under the age of 18. Uh, the BAME community, the LGBT uh, community, travellers, sex workers and so on. And the, the problem is that these offences seem to defy the ordinary trial process. There have been changes in our law, favourable changes. Uh, we've had the Sexual Offences Northern Iron Order 2008, which uh, really did change the law in quite a substantial way. We had dealt with uh, a new look at consent, a new look at sexual autonomy. Uh, it was meant to comply with the European Convention on Human Rights. We've had the Victim Charter. Uh, certainly, in, in, in terms of the, the contents, uh, gives a, a number of rights to, to victims and dependents. And of course, there's a raft of international standards and rights. There's the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, there's the Istanbul Convention dealing with violence against women, there's the Lanzarote Convention, sexual violence against children, there's the UN Declaration, the Elimination of Violence Against Women, and of course, there's the uh, human Rights the Convention on Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms and the Human Rights Act, which meant to affect uh, 1998. And of course, there's also the 
EU Charter of Fundamental Rights, which deals with a number of important issues uh, close to my heart, namely the, the right to be treated with dignity and uh, private life, the rights of children, the rights of the elderly, and the rights of those with a disability. Um, but the truth of it is that despite all these protections for the rights of complainants and victims, and for that matter, accused persons, despite all that, um, my review um, revealed to me that the rule of law is falling far short of what it should be in these areas in dealing with the rights of those involved. But hence my review made 250, just over 250 recommendations for change over a raft of areas, including, as I've said, the rights of complainants, victims, witnesses, and accused persons in the criminal justice system. Um, it, it looks as if it's been accepted by and large by most people and certainly by the Department of Justice, uh, Department of Justice uh, set up an implementation team uh, led by uh, 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 Ms. Hamilton, who's been absolutely terrific. Uh, we have behind it, uh, I think, a first-class Minister of Justice in uh, Minister Law. We have progressive and innovative uh, Lord Chief Justice. And also in the Republic of Ireland, I might say, First Class Minister of Justice, Mr. McEntee. And yet, and yet, to almost two years on from my report, uh, only 14% of the recommendations have yet been implemented. 70% of them are apparently being worked on, except that. But it's a five year plan. It's going to take five years, apparently, for the rights to be uh, vindicated. Um, I have no doubt that um, a Bill of Rights uh, is something to uh, be uh, lauded. Uh, I, I, should be, I should be the main advocate of anything that uh, brings forward uh, rights to people in, in these circumstances. James Baldwin said, you know, that not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can change until it's faced, and, uh, and a Bill of Rights can, can, can uh, do that. Uh, I think uh, it's an opportunity perhaps to grab the wheel of history, to lift the profile of the rights that I want elevated. It can be importantly part of a wider educative, societal and cultural process. It can be a pathway to uh, a better realisation of our highest ideals. But on the other hand, on the other hand uh, I have to recognise that um, the danger is that a Bill of Rights lacks granularity. Will it be justiciable? I mean, in, in my review, I provided, uh, as I've said, over 250 recommendations. I was absolutely determined that I would avoid uh, loud-sounding generalities which seems good uh, to the ear, but in practice does not provide the detailed granularity, the detailed analysis that I feel is necessary. Um, you may or may not agree with the recommendations that I made, uh, and you may criticize some, but one thing you could criticize is that I have provided the potential uh, for a granular, detailed uh, approach to these matters. Um, and my fear is that a Bill of Rights may, may lack that granularity, that it may be high on compromise and trade-off uh, victims don't need compromise. They don't need trade-offs. They want the rights that they've been entitled to and that they have been denied for decades and decades despite these international standards, 
despite the changes in our law. And my fear is that it may raise aspirations which sadly may only be dashed again once it becomes clear that these uh, statements in the Bill of Rights are not justiciable. In truth, you know, virtue and effectiveness are not measured on the same scale. And, and I'm interested uh, in what is effective for these good people uh, who've been denied their rights for so long. And I wonder if um, our efforts to, to elevate the rights of these people might not be better served by emphasis on specific, tight, detailed legislation. Uh, for example, the uh, Victim Charter being made under law, the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child being introduced into law. I know that the Children's Law Centre has been uh, raising that very matter this week and so on. Uh, is the Bill of Rights the best way to do it? Well, the, I can see the arguments on, on either side. On either side, and as I've said, um, the provision of a pathway to our higher ideals about uh, the rights of, of, of victims and complainants is is to be praised. Uh, I just ask that if you go down this pathway, um, that you, you take steps to ensure that there is sufficient granularity there, so that the raised aspirations are not as, as so often in the past resulted in the rights of, and it's primarily women, 89% of these complainants and victims are female and children, that their aspirations are not dashed yet again. Thank you, Sir John, for that and for the submission that you provided to us in written form, um, both really interesting. Um, I just wanted to ask you a question. At the, the very start of your presentation there, you made reference to the fact that whilst um, these sorts of sexual violent crimes can happen to anyone and do happen to, to men, women, children, people of all genders across the spectrum from all sorts of backgrounds, it is a fact that these crimes happen disproportionately um, within marginalised groups and marginalised societies. And it's always something when we're having a conversation, particularly around uh, sexual violence and domestic violence, where I think sometimes we can we can be at risk of, of sweeping generalisations, and the fact is misogyny and the patriarchy hurts men as much as it does women. And you know I, I would imagine that there are an awful lot of male victims of these crimes that won't report because of the the stigma and the shame and, and all of the things that exist out there. But just going back to what you had said in terms of a bill of rights. If we are um, using a Bill of Rights to address the rights deficits for those marginalised groups and those people within society who are at a rights deficit currently, do we go some way then in preventing the, the disproportionate impact things like rates of sexual crime have on those groups? Yes, I, I think you do. Uh, it is right it goes across all genders, but it is right to say that 89% of victims are female and children. And I just wonder if 89% of victims were men, would we be so slow in introducing the changes that are necessary? But you're absolutely right to uh, uh, raise and highlight the questions of uh, particular communities, uh, the elderly, uh, those with disability, the blind, the deaf, uh, 
groups are intellectually impaired and so on. And, and I think that, that a Bill of Rights which would specifically raise the question of uh, these uh, communities, uh, I think, uh, could, could elevate their rights, could introduce the public to what I think they don't fully appreciate, is the suffering that people in these communities uh, endure uh, without, without resource to uh, appropriate, appropriate remedy. So I agree with you. Thank you very much. I'm going to pass now to the Vice Chair. Chair, thank you. And, and Sir John, good afternoon and thank you very much for, for engaging with, with the committee and I, and I note the passion with which you're, you're addressing these issues. Uh, I, I was particularly struck with um, paragraph 39 of your written submission um, and I, I would like to quote it and get it into the record because you say, the danger in a long drawn out debate about the contents of a Bill of Rights is that it might lead to a forlorn tribute to the principle of compromise and an imperfect trade-off which would drown in generalities. It's a very striking summation. It, it's my view. Uh, um, you know, during my, my, my review, I spoke to, I think, just over 40 uh, people who were complaining of stroke victims, largely women, but, but a few men as well. Um, and uh, it was perhaps it was harrowing experience of my entire uh, certain judicial career and possibly in my life. And uh, and I recognise that these people have not been served well by the uh, justice system. They don't require compromise. They honestly don't require trade-offs. They require that they require an unflinching assertion of their rights. They need the steps taken to address them so that their lives, which have been brutally flown, brutally flown, uh, now, now take a turn for the better, if not for them, at least for those in the future. And my concern is that I, I recognise only too well the need for compromise. I, I recognise only too well the need for trade-off in our current situation in Northern Ireland. I recognise that. And, it, and, and that's in many ways that the key to the future of Northern Ireland, but not in the case of rights, not in the case of asserting the rights of these uh, people who have signed for too long. So I stand over what I said. So basically, are you saying if we're going to draw up a Bill of Rights, say what we mean and mean what we say, no ambiguity, make it granular? 100%. But it, is, is it not possible to, extend, to, to have a Bill of Rights which represents a game of two halves, in that the first half might be your preamble, uh, which might be more aspirational uh, with concepts such as progressive realisation and the, the use of maximum available resources. And then a second half, which does what you want and, and very specifically uh, articulates rights that can be uh, taken to court and enforced through due disability. I agree entirely. Uh, the preamble should include and I say so, um, uh, uh, aspirations, uh, aims, targets. Uh, most Bill of Rights do that. Uh, but, uh, dare I say it, that all too often Bill of Rights in other countries, and we looked at 16 other countries during my review, all too often the, the second part of it, as you so correctly uh, uh, term it, lacks the granularity. So, I agree with you. 
the preamble should, should be in, in these aspirational terms, but please, if you're going to do it, make sure that that granularity, the justiciability is built into at least the second Understood. How, how comfortable do you think you and, and your, your colleagues or your erstwhile colleagues would be in adjudicating on the first half if these are aspirational rights? They're unlikely to be justiciable. Um, the, the generalities and, uh, and so on are unlikely to be justiciable. Obviously, I can't say until, until I've seen what the preamble is. Uh, and there's a danger that the judiciary becomes um, politicised. And, uh, and I'm always conscious of, of, of that risk. Um, uh, and, and that's why um, I emphasize the judiciability aspect of your Bill of Rights, because without that granularity, um, I say as an ex-judge, that um, uh, they will not come before the courts with any force. Okay, and, and on that question of, of the potential politicization uh, of the judiciary, I mean, I asked Sir Declan Morgan about this a couple of weeks ago, and, and I, I hope I'm quoting him correctly by saying, I think he said, yes, it could happen, but it's, it's not significant because you, as, as a body, are, are beyond being influenced by public opinion. I agree entirely with him. Um, it's the public perception of it. The public perception is, also, is often wrong uh, because judges, uh, like I said, it's not experience in spite of politics of it. But perception is quite important. And, um, and uh, if we will only deal with those areas that are in law and justice, um, for that to be uh, a criterion, it needs, as I've said a number of times, the particularity and granularity which uh, fuels such uh, matters. So, so a headline like the famous Daily Mail's Enemies of the People, while not welcome, would have no real impact on the performance of the judiciary. No, they would, and, and haven't had. But it's right to say that the uh, the damage it can cause to the public perception of the judiciary is something that concerns me. And would it not also create a, a a newfound tension between the legislature and the judiciary? It shouldn't. I mean, honestly, the legislature and, uh, should not be uh, afraid of nothing to fear from from the judiciary I mean the, the role of the judiciary is to interpret the legislation to apply the law as it is and uh, I see no basis for a conflict between the legislature and the judiciary so long as each of them recognize what their roles are in, the, in our constitution so John that, that's that's very helpful thank you very much and and, and I, I absolutely get your passion that a bill of rights should be very specific about protecting the rights of the vulnerable uh, and of victims and uh, once again thank you for your engagement okay Mick we're going to pass now to the members that are with us via Starleaf so I'll take them in order of surname Paula um, thank you very much sir Thank you, Sir John. Uh, it's great to see you here at committee. Um, just wanted to pick up on a few points um, that Mike mentioned there. And you, you talked about granularity. Is there not a concern that if we spend a long time trying to, you know, have a very comprehensive bill of rights that it could actually take us the five years that you you mentioned there? You know, just trying to satisfy all the different sectoral groups and sections of society that will be expecting or wanting this bill of rights to. 
be the panacea without sound flippant for all the issues that affect the people of Vietnam? That's the first question. Yeah, uh, of course there's a danger of that. There's a danger of that. But equally so, one has to ask, what is the benefit of a bit of rights unless it has that granularity in it? On the other hand, it is right to say that I think it's the, the Human Rights Commission indicated, and I agree with this, that uh, the rule of the Bill of Rights can also be a method of providing a pathway of, of part of a wider educative, societal, cultural practice. That's an important part of the Bill of Rights as well, because as I hopefully have emphasized in my review, a key component of change in our society will come through education, will come through cultural process where we think differently about victims. But equally so, uh, I have to say that um, uh, notwithstanding the danger that you can have a bill of rights in the arts law, equally so, I don't think it's beyond the creativity of uh, those who are drafting such a bill of rights to make it sharp, like nonetheless granular in relation to um, uh, the victims of which I am speaking. And if that's not possible, then I have to question the vitality of a bill of rights. Thank you. Uh, I'm just wondering then, would it not be useful then if it was not a light touch, but not a very expansive one, but did provide the um, committees at Stormer, for example, with a, a really um, important, powerful pre-scrutiny guide um, for our legislation here? And then we then could be as an, as a sorry as a legislature could be looking at making sure that we have our single quality act that we have the um, piece of legislation you referenced there that are coming through Department of Justice. So it could actually just be the, very much the, the icing on the cake of every other piece of legislation. Do you think that that would maybe because of, there's not that much in it, it might not have much gravitas or much much gravity? Yeah, that's the danger. The, the last point you made is the danger. I mean, what I, what I would like, what I want is um, specific type legislation dealing with the areas that, that I've been in. Let me give an example. I have said that um, uh, victims or complainants should not be exposed to the public gaze during uh, uh, trials of serious sexual offences. Um, in other words, the public should be excluded. This happens in the Republic of Ireland and perhaps in Scotland where the complaints can be covered. You know, legislation is the best way to deal with that. A short, sharp piece of legislation dealing with that. You don't need a bill of rights to deal with that. That's the granular approach that I need. But, but, I make it clear that I think that uh, a bill of rights which embraces that general concept of uh, the right to privacy and so on um, can, can be a, a, a useful means of providing that um, wider educative uh, and societal process that's necessary. It's a combination of the two. My fear is that the emphasis on a Bill of Rights will take away the spotlight from the, the particular legislation that's needed to implement the 250 recommendations I have made. Uh, thank you very much. And finally, um, we've spoken before when you were um, looking into serious sexual offences around um, family and private law um, a long time since. And obviously there's issues there in terms of the courts almost grinding along and, and there's such a, a, a backlog. In what way do you think that the Bill of Rights could help or hinder um, the whole court infrastructure and court processes here? Delay has to be addressed. 
delay is anathema to justice. Um, and, and there has been inordinate, unacceptable delay in the criminal justice system in dealing with um, serious sexual offences. It's being, being addressed. Um, and that's why I say you have a regressive and innovative uh, Lord Chief Justice who has immediately grasped this and has dealt with it in a crime court protocol. And so delay as a concept uh, and the fact that it is an athlete of justice should be part of the Bill of Rights. People, not only, I'm not only talking about victims of the case, I'm talking about accused persons as well, have a right to a, a fair and, and swift trial. And that should be part of your Bill of Rights. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay, Paula. We'll go now to Mark Durkin. Thank you, Chair, and, and thank you, uh, Sir John. I'm sorry I was late getting in there, so I missed the start of your contribution on that, however, regret your written submission. I just want to touch on another point there. I could push you a wee bit on it, and it was around the risk that the Bill of Rights might pose to, or well, I suppose, to politicise, the politicisation of the judiciary. But looking at the situation across the water, which again Mike referred, that the issue isn't so much judges unduly interfering, but other branches of the state wanting to demonise judges when decisions don't go their way, and the politicians that want to do that will always find a way to do that. But I wonder whether we'd be asking the judiciary to take an approach that it doesn't already take when applying the Human Rights Act. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and uh, the, the, uh, the danger of politicising judges, I think very often uh, in, the, in the eyes of the public, they see that way, whereas in fact it's not happening. And I'm certain it's not happening. Judges have not been politicised. But it's a question of perception. That's why, as Mike mentioned, pressure damage to the people is damaging to the perception of the judiciary. But it doesn't happen. And uh, the Human Rights Act, has been, uh, I think, a very innovative and uh, appropriate piece of, of legislation. I just have one thing to that. The um, Human Rights Act was introduced in uh, 1998, but into effect in, in 2000. And, you know, my review was 18 years on, and despite the presence of the uh, Convention on Human Rights, despite all the other Europe, uh, international standards I mentioned, despite that, I would necessarily make 250 recommendations in order to try and alleviate the uh, uh, burdens that rested on um, uh, victims and complainants and so on. But why is that? Why is it that we after the current standards, we still have uh, a huge number of women, particularly women, men as well, we do not who will not report these crimes. Why is it that we have 40% of those who do come into the system drop out? Why is it that we have, uh, of those who complain about uh, serious sexual offence, only one to three is not in? Why is it? If we have all these raft of international standards and rights, uh, read my review. I guess some of the answers. So um, I am very much in favour of the Human Rights Act. I'm very much in favour of the international standards. But I, I, I'm just concerned that the granularity needs to to get an out of 
are going to sustain the trace. Societies evolve, societies change, 
that your blood of rights is so granular that it cannot respond, that you have to go back to the starting block again? Um, may I make two points about that? <clears throat> the first is this. Unless there's a, and I'm not saying there's a, there's a bad thing, because I've said a number of times, Bill of Rights can provide, can grasp the wheel of history. It can provide a pathway to the future. Um, but so long as you realise that if that is the height of the Bill of Rights, then there is going to be a problem making it justiciable. Um, it is difficult to, to make justiciable aspirations. And, and dare I say, that has been the problem, in my view, with um, some of the international results. And, for example, um, the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child has been in, has been in being for years, years, years. But it's not in our law. It's not in our law. You can't enforce those rights. They can be taken into account and are taken into account, but they're not enforceable. They're not in law. And that's why they, this week the Children's uh, Centre was, was raising this very point. I'm glad they did. So they, you say, is it going to be too grand or too difficult to evolve? Um, there are certain fundamental basic rights that I think um, will, will remain throughout time. Um, and for them to have any real being, I think they need to be made justiciable. Um, the rights of the people that I have been meeting and had the privilege and honour to discuss, um, their rights, you know, are, are, are not rocket science. You, they're not asking for the moon. Take, for example, the right to be, to have some legal representation, to have a right to, to challenge uh, looking at your previous sexual experience, the right to challenge the uh, uh, taking of your private data, your phone and going through your diaries or your medical records. These are fundamental rights of privacy that people have. Now, that's not a question of evolution. Those rights don't, in content they may evolve, but as a fundamental right, they don't change. And I think there are fundamental rights for example, the European Convention has fundamental rights. I think there are fundamental rights that you can include in a Bill of Rights that won't fall foul to evolution and change. Um, I agree, as I said to Mr. Bradshaw, there's a danger you have, you have a Bill of Rights that's too much long, and, and, and that's, that's obviously far too long, people lose sight of it. But equally so, I think there are fundamental rights that if you want to put in a Bill of Rights, could be there and that the risk of evolution is not going to damage them. They're there. The right to a fair trial, the right to justice for you as a victim and a complainant, as well as the accused, is there for all to see, and it can be enshrined in a Bill of Rights, if you want to do it that way. Yes, uh, I agree with you on that, on that point. The experience of your review, surely, and I, I think your review, has to be dealt with separately to a of rights. Um, the legislator has to work their way through your recommendations uh, and the quicker the matter. And it's actually a reflection perhaps of legislators failing to adopt the principles of good practice in terms of, you mentioned the, the Human Rights Act, the fact that the Human Rights Act has been in place for 18 years or 20 years, but didn't all of you still have to come forward with the significant number of recommendations we have to protect victims and the accused uh, in the trial. That's perhaps a failure of legislators to 
optimize the use of those uh, principles rather than the principles for faulty at the start, but that's just a thought. But the other, the other thing I wanted to talk to you in terms of this uh, judicial deterrent. If you look at section 75 of, of, of the equality legislation, um, there are mechanisms put in place that are outside the courts. You can end up in court of asking, but you, the, 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 the categories were set out. Um, the principles were set out, the, the commission was established, they, 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 they then went to the, the various bodies and said that this is what we expect from you, this is best practice, and that evolved over a period of time now. I have my own views around and then the commission through its different uh, generations has, has dealt with that. But is that a way of dealing with the Bill of Rights as well, in terms of saying that we can't have a very granular Bill of Rights? It doesn't always have to end up in the court system, that should be the very last resort, but we can have various bodies below the courts which can administer to ensure that legislation is being properly administered. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more, I'll illustrate that at the moment. Can I just deal with the first part where you say that the legislators have, the legislator has not really acted fully? It's not entirely the legislator's fault. The truth of it is, that uh, our society in general, and, I, and I'm part of it, I'm as much to blame as I am, the society in general has not gripped the need for uh, addressing the problems of complainants and victims. And that's why a key component of my review has been my strong encouragement that we change our approach to our educational system, how we uh, educate people about uh, sexual offences, about consent, about uh, yes means yes, no means no, and so on. Our society needs to look at this, not just the, the members of the, of the legislature, it's, it's our society needs change. And that's why uh, I'm hoping that we're going to have research into these minority groups who are suffering so that the public are aware just uh, how badly they're being treated, how, how they're being ignored in terms of what's happening, and also in schools, but we're at the very early age that we make sure that that uh, not only girls are taught responsibilities, but more importantly, perhaps, boys are taught what responsibilities are, that men realize that uh, they have responsibilities and so on. That's the first point. The second point is this. Um, one of the most important, or perhaps the most controversial area in my review, was my belief that the criminal justice system is not the only means of addressing uh, these problems. Uh, the fact of the matter is that between 70 and 80 percent of people, this increased across more Sweden than with men, but largely women, do not report to the police serious sexual offences. Now there are plethora of reasons why that's so. Partly the criminal justice system is so exacting, but it's also our society, it's also the shame that they wrongly people feel. Um, and what are we to do in our society? Are we to say, well, very well, if you won't come within the criminal justice system, then nothing we can do for you. Just, just bear. Uh, and I think the state has got an obligation beyond the criminal justice system. I think there are means outside the criminal justice system where we have to address these problems. Criminal justice system is not answer the rights of these people. And hence, hence, I am a strong advocate of restorative justice, even in serious offences such as um, uh, rape and other serious crimes. It's not a question of letting these miscreants off 
with these offences. They're getting off the moment. If 70 to 80 percent of people are not reporting these offences, that means these guys think they walk on water and uh, these crimes are continuing. And so we do need to address these matters outside the criminal justice system. And I'm very, very pleased that someone such as yourself has Is that you, John? Yes, thank you very much, thank you. Okay, well, Sir John, thank you very much for your patience and your time this afternoon and answering all our questions. And all right, thank you. I'll let you go now. All right, thanks very much indeed for inviting me. I appreciate the opportunity to discuss these matters. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Members, we can now go to the third item on our agenda and we have a briefing on aspirational rights, the enforcement of such rights and their impact on constitutional arrangements uh, with Sir Stephen Irwin, former Lord Justice of Appeal of England and Wales. Sir Stephen was educated in Belfast before he won a scholarship to Cambridge University. Um, as a barrister during the 1970s and 90s, 1980s, he was active in the NCCL, now Liberty. And in 2000, he was appointed a recorder, became chairman of the Bar Council in 2004, and in 2006 became a High Court judge. So he has a lengthy history. Sir Stephen, welcome to the committee. Thank you very much for joining us and for the, the submission you provided with us, with us with, uh, before, before coming. If you want to begin your briefing. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, I wanted to, I'm not going to repeat what I put in writing, um, but I just have a few points really to flesh it out and put some emphasis to it. Um, I should say I've listened with care to what Sir John Gillan has said, and uh, I did uh, watch and listen to the session with the Lord Chief Justice Sir Declan Morgan. Um, I'm not doubting the use of law. I'm not doubting the use of law to make change. Um, and a good example came up this afternoon, the recommendation from Sir John's review that victims of sexual crime should be able to give their evidence in private. That is a change in the law that makes a real difference, uh, precisely because it is particular and explicit and clear. My concern is that if you move away from what other speakers have called granularity, then there are all sorts of dangers that flow from that. Let's begin with the nature of the rights that have been protected, and generally speaking are protected under the European Convention or the Charter or any of the other instruments which are regularly the basis of litigation and decisions. The, historically, the nature of the rights protected have been civil and political rights. They've either involved the relationship of public authorities and the state and individuals, and the freedom of action of individuals, or they have engaged with obligations of the state, which can be positive or negative, towards citizens, prisons or a planning system or whatever it might be. But those are all specific 
a uh, conflicts with they seek to resolve arise out of specific sets of facts. And it is the decisions of the courts interpreting those uh, constitutional rights, wherever they are expressed, which make the difference. The right is only any good to groups of individuals with common ground or to individuals when there's a decision spelling out what it means. Aspirational rights seem to me uh, a great idea in theory, but to carry very real risks. And that was why I gave the focus that I did to the written paper. Let me try and flesh it out with this example. Suppose you put an aspirational right in a constitutional instrument, a bill of rights, uh, for good quality housing, whatever the language. First of all, that's of no use uh, unless it's entrenched. Because if it isn't entrenched in the Bill of Rights and so that uh, it can be changed by a majority of the legislature at any time, then it really lacks any constitutional force. Let's suppose it's entrenched as often is the case with a 66% or a 75% majority needed to change it. Then you have an election. And into the legislature comes um, a majority on a fiscally conservative platform. You immediately set up a potential or actual conflict between the constitutional right that is in, entrenched and the election result. The platform on which the administration commanding majority in that legislature has just been elected. Well, what do you do about that? What do the courts do about that if they have to grapple with it at all? Because a lobby or a citizen will be saying, in the Bill of Rights, it says, I must have more than I've got under the current administration and the current approach to interpreting specific legislation. And the executive, whether it's Northern Ireland or elsewhere, will be saying we've just been elected on a fiscally conservative basis. So we can't put more money into, as I put in the paper, X, at the cost of Y. And you, the courts, you, the judge, are not in a position to say we should. So you get to the crux of what I see as a major problem with aspirational rights in constitutional instruments. And it is either that the courts will be stuck between competing positions, one in the Constitution and the other, carrying the force of a recent election of a mandate or legitimacy. And either the courts make a decision about that or they say, not justiciable. And if they say it's not justiciable, what's the point? It has, as Sir John was saying, carried the implication to those affected that they've got a right, that they've got a right which is entrenched in the constitutional provision, that they've got a right which must be acted on. But it can't be, because the courts have said well, it's not enforceable. I wanted to have a word following on what uh, Sir Declan Morgan has said, just to agree with him on one point that I think is important. If and when um, 
we depart from the European Union and therefore depart from the ambit of the Charter. The interpretation of the European Convention, which will continue to be um, a living instrument, undoubtedly in England and Wales, and I'm perfectly sure in Northern Ireland, looking to the implications and the application of the European Convention will be done by looking at decisions of the Strasbourg Court, I forget the Luxembourg Court, interpreting the all identical in the Charter. And so, uh, as an interpretive approach to the continuing constitutional document that will apply uh, both in GB and in Northern Ireland, I think the um, committee can need no fear but the courts are going to look at decisions on interpreting essentially the same rights, expressed in essentially uh, the same language. I wanted to add a word on the question of the impact on judiciary um, of the importing into a constitutional instrument of aspirational rights. I've developed that in the paper, and I won't repeat what I've said. Um, but here I I agree with both Sir John Dillon and Sir Declan Morgan. Hitherto, the judiciary in Northern Ireland and the judiciary in England and Wales have stood up to the challenge of the expanded ambit in public law cases, judicial review cases, derived from the Human Rights Act. Um, but that has been a process of um, applying rights of the kind I've described, dealing with obligations between the state that exist and the individual, and on particular facts. By definition, that process has been one of applying fact to existing law. And yet, the tension has been considerable. I, I am a, proud, a very proud week several years ago when on one day of the week, I was lauded on the front page of the Daily Mail for a sentence I had passed and sentencing remarks. And the following week, castigated in the leader of the Daily Mail for a sentence they didn't like. So we're all used to the notion that you can't please anyone and you shouldn't be trying to. While we are left in the situation of applying specific rights on existing relationships between the state and the individual to particular facts, then uh, we will bear our burden and we will carry on. If we are asked to interpret much more general things, um, to interpret aspirational rights, as I lay down in the paper, in such a way that does lead to a potential conflict between the legislature and the judiciary, the judiciary interpreting a constitutional instrument. Here I do depart from Sir John Gillen in one aspect of what he's just said. Either we say that is not just as in which case it is not merely pointless, but it is set up expectations, set up uh, an understanding in the public mind that that now is what will happen. And then it won't, because the judges say, that's not justiciable. Well, you think about the effect 
And that would happen. The courts would immediately be in the position of it being said, you haven't defended the Constitution. Well, we don't do that. We say, well, we'll try. And then the judge will be drawn into attempting a judgment which will justify the constitutional right, which will be a lecture or a decision to the executive of the day, which will command a majority in the legislature for not going beyond what the existing legislation stipulates. And it's that difficulty that I try to address. In a way, it's a bit of a cop-out to say that's not justiciable. It's correct legally, but I think it's a hard thing to do, particularly at the margins, when you're faced with a constitutional instrument recently passed, entrenched, etc., etc., and you say, well, sorry, no good to me, and it's no good to you, the party. And so I think there is a real danger in raising expectations. I think it is not merely that the danger of general or aspirational rights may not be effective, but that they may be too vague to be effective, that they will involve conflict and difficulty for judges either way, and it also gives the public and the legislator and everyone the feeling, I've solved the problem. And you won't have solved the problem. What you will have done is to raise an expectation that won't be met. Now, I am a believer in rights. I've got a long track record before being a judge and as a judge of implementing rights, and I think it's very important to emphasize that. I'm not someone who thinks the law can't work or help or protect people, but throughout what you've heard from my distinguished colleagues, you can hear the word granularity. And even though there may be an educative purpose in looking at general rights or aspirations, those are really the stuff of political debate. What we should be doing is making sure that the law is practicable and that we put it into practice and enforce it. And that's the balance that works. Nobody was ever helped by a general declaration. As Sir John has said, the general declaration is time out of number for years and years and years. And they have a value on a global basis. They have a value in a political forum. But they're absolutely of no practical use to a litigate unless they've got a legal hook which is justiciable, which can be operated, and can be a platform for change in a progressive way as case by case we develop what the law means in such a way that applies to others. I think I've banged on enough. Sir Stephen, thank you very much. You provided quite a useful and succinct note. I thought it was interestingly written and your verbal presentation has helped to further colour in the detail there. One of the things that you said, well two of the things that you said I want to ask you about, but one of the things struck me 
uh, all along this process, I would sort of regard the Bill of Rights when we talk about you know, the role of the legislator, the role of the courts, that the Bill of Rights is something to which a, a set of standards to which government must be held accountable. And what you were basically saying there was that, you know, with a change in government, maybe a government uh, coming into power that were conservative and wouldn't want to act according to those rights, you would end up with rights denied that were written into law. And what I'm thinking, my, my perception of that would be that at that point, the courts would step in or the remedies would be used to ensure that the government of the day, regardless of their ideological position, would be forced to act according to the delivery of these rights. Would, would that not be? Well, I, I think that is what I was anticipating. So, um, uh, government has come in with a majority in the Assembly or Parliament um, on a platform of saying we must reduce taxes. And uh, the result is that the uh, administration, for example, reduces housing benefit. And the result of that is that uh, people are homeless to a greater degree, or they're in poor accommodation, or whatever. And they come to court and they say, this government's change has uh, been negative for my constitutional right to be given to have access to reasonable accommodation for me and my family. So what does the court do? The court either says, well, um, yes, we agree. No, sorry. The court either says that's not just this year. I'll help you. That's not our role. And that's essentially the answer you were getting from uh, the Chief Justice and implicitly from Sir John Keller. And if you don't have that, then the court says, well, what do we do about this dispute? We are going to try and reach a conclusion. Are we, the judges, going to say that the platform on which you've just been elected doesn't matter? Now, because although you were elected on a fiscally conservative platform to reduce taxes and reduce housing benefit as a consequence, we say to you that the constitutional right to better housing and to access, therefore, to more funding for housing trumps that. So I, the judge, am telling you, you can't do in office what you were elected to do. I suppose at that point what I would say is two things. A government shouldn't act to lower anyone's standard of living. And number two, we, we looked at other worldwide models and in terms of like the South African progressive realisation. So at that point a government would have to show that they had taken steps to try and fulfil their obligations to the rights and to not damage anyone's standard of living. So I would imagine that in the in the scenario that you've set there, a government or, or a, a future government or prospective government are promising people that they're going to lower taxes, but they're not saying whilst we're cutting taxes, we're also going to cut housing benefit for people in need. What I'm saying is that if people knew that, they might not elect said government. So you are saying that the judge should intervene, should say when you achieved your majority, you didn't tell people that lowering taxes would work out lowering housing benefit. Yes. And therefore we're going to stop you being. You, you immediately put the judge 
position of saying your political platform on which you were elected was not legitimate. But surely that would be the case in that scenario. But you're saying it would be the case in every scenario. But because that conflict will arise if the incoming government on the political platform has done something which the judge is drawn to saying is inconsistent with the constitutional right. That means that you need to change the constitution every time you want to change political direction. You've got an inherent conflict. I, th I think that, but, but that's, that's, that's the role of the, the judge in that instance then, to ensure that the government are held to account. But the government's being held to account on the grounds of an aspirational right, which is in direct conflict with the political platforms just achieved a majority. But you have conceded there that that political platform was leaving out a key detail. No, you put that scenario to me. And, but what I'm saying is, well, you created even if, even, if, even if you accept that, and even yeah. if you accept that the political platform of the incoming government, um, as they all do, emphasised the goodies and not the cost, they always do that. But even if you accept that, and if you accept that it was a, uh, you might rationally take the view that that was done to a legitimate degree, you still put the judge in the position of saying you, who've just been elected, shouldn't do what you were elected to do. And that politicises the whole process. Uh, see, I would interpret it differently. I would say that the judge in that instance is saying to the government, you must do according to the law, according to the constitution, according to the Bill of Rights that's enacted. And rather than say, you can't do what you said you were going to do in lowering taxes, I would say you can't do what you didn't tell us you were going to do in lowering housing benefit to people in need of housing assistance. But it, then you get drawn to the second stage. It's even assuming you get that far. I gave the example in the, or set up the problem in the paper. So the government comes in on a majority of lowering taxes. And the judge says, right, well, you've got a constitutional right to good housing. And, and therefore you can't lower housing benefit. The government says, well, if we don't lower housing benefit, we have to lower the funding to schools. And so, is there, is there a constitutional right to a good education? Is that affected by lowering the funding of schools? And what about then the right to a decent medical treatment? What about access to health treatment? And you end up with a judge being asked to invoke one constitutional right in a box, at the same time as which there are other constitutional rights of a similar aspirational nature. And if, you, if the government is defeated on this one, because its shelter is the organisation that stimulated the legal action, then you have you know, CPAG or you have um, some of the health bodies. Are they to be brought in as parties? Because the implication, if the government has been elected with the majority of the legislature on a tax-cutting platform, if you don't cut them here, you'll have to cut them there. Is the judge in the end to adjudicate between the competing demands for funding? We're not equipped to do that, never mind the politicization of the judiciary.
not equipped to do that. That's not the function of the judge. Because you would be drawing the judge, if it was an honest-minded process, into comparing the funding demands uh, within the budget. But having to be given evidence about the future tax yield, being put in the same position as the government, uh, uh, facing all the competing demands, and then reaching a decision that, properly speaking, is only uh, to be left to a government with all of that information and all the controls at its demand. So never mind even the challenge to the legitimacy of the incoming government with the majority of the legislature. You end up putting a judge in a position of deciding political decisions. But all the judge is doing in that instance is forcing a government... I'm sorry, your voice is fading. Could you just repeat the last bit again? I'm saying, I don't know if there's kickback on our side, but what I'm saying is all a judge is doing, in the initial scenario that you had set out there, all the judge is doing is asking the government to act in accordance with the Bill of Rights or the, the, the right to housing. So all it's doing is holding yes. it to account in terms of a right. I mean, we could, we could put all of these things in the context of, you know, to have A means you can't have B. But what we're trying to do is have as much as possible with the resources available to us. So, you know, if, if the judge's role is to hold the government to account and ensure that the government doesn't break the law, and the law states that people should have a right to housing where they need it, I can't see what the problem is with the, with the judge asking the government to act in accordance to that. Because the, the aspirational general right is so general yes. that unless it becomes, as the, my predecessor has said, granular, then you end up moving from a general principle, indeed a number of general principles which will compete, and you end up telling an incoming government with a majority in the legislature, you can't implement your, your electoral platform. So then... I think there is... I mean, I think it was, I sense we're going round and round. No, so just, sorry, so, sorry, Sir Stephen, no, I just, from, from um, what you had said in your initial presentation, my, I was sort of getting the impression from both your written presentation and from what you had said, that you think that, you know, it's, there's, there's always going to be those scenarios, and rather than trying to solve any of these issues, we would be better without trying to create a bill of rights, whereas my my yes, sort of instinct would be I, my instinct would be that we should delve into it and try and come up with a very specific set of rights to you know, we should aspire to have the best possible society and we we, we should by by that sort of judgment try to have a bill of rights that caters for all of these things to allow that people will have access to housing if they need it or healthcare or whatever the case may be. I suppose it's just saying beginning today. I'm not against law. I'm all in favour of law. But if you think about housing or health or education, the way to do it is to say we're revising the Housing Act. In the in the Housing Act twenty twenty one, the standards will be as follows. In the Education Act twenty twenty one the particular obligations of incoming government will be as follows. And that carries the legitimacy 
of the legislature today. And it's specific, it's granular. And then the judge doesn't need to worry about whether there's competition between X and Y. Because the judge is interpreting the Housing Act that is current law today. And that's what all of my predecessors have meant by saying you need granular provisions. Yes. So that then becomes justiciable, it's effective, and the incoming government that brings in such legislation that changes things, either it succeeds in reducing those rights in the housing legislation, or it doesn't. And the judge is only called upon to interpret specific law that is law derived from the assembly or the parliament or whatever it might be, or very often regulation on how to make it. I don't know if you realize the scale. About 30 to 40 acts of parliament are passed a year. 4,500 regulations are passed a year. That's really where legislation lies. And it is the, the executive drafts that for the most part, not the, not the legislature. But it's approved by the legislature, so the judge can deal with it. And whether it's, you know, housing or keeping bees or whatever it might be, you've got something specific, you've got something you know is legitimate, that are derived from the authority of the legislature, and you can apply it to the facts without all of this stuff that runs the risk of raising expectations that can't be fulfilled or placing the judges into a position where either they will say not just this you've got it's been used or, or uh, dealing with it but not being able to do it properly. I suppose we're, we're, we're going to agree to disagree, I would say, um, issues with that. And I suppose it's, it's the accountability measure and it's that, you know, what you're suggesting there, you know, a five-year term of any particular government and then there's something that they didn't like with the, that their predecessor had had in, in legislation and then they can change it. So, you know, the, I suppose the, the judges in that instance are holding a government to account of something that they have created rather than a rights-based approach um, and, and, and when you look at what the human rights organisations are, are saying and the sector groups and the people that are representing the people that are in rights deficits that, that would be that would be where I would be trying to take guidance but no thank you very much Sir Stephen I'm going to pass now to the Vice Chair. Chair thank you and uh, good afternoon Sir Stephen thank you for, for your engagement I'm, I'm enjoying this. Um, could I take it that you, you would agree with, with uh, Sir John Gillan that the, the danger for us to avoid is producing a document uh, which, as he described it, would be a forlorn tribute to the principle of compromise? And that's a very vivid phrase, and I do agree. But he also said, uh, I, I believe not only that we could, but that we should have a document in two halves with a preamble which would be aspirational and then uh, a set of very firm, granular rights. Are, are you in agreement with that? I'm in agreement with, there's no harm in a general declaration of rights if you also have granular legislation. I, I question whether you need to or should have granular legislation in a Bill of Rights, because it dates. Look at the position in America where the, I think it's the Fourth Amendment, the one that deals with bearing arms. Second, Second Amendment. Because it's not specific provision, but it's in the Constitution. 
existence. It has made it phenomenally difficult to deal with arms control. Much more so than had that been a piece of legislation which could then be amended with changing social conditions. So for me, there is a I don't object to a general statement of the rights of man, but they proliferate, they're all over the place. And enshrining them as a, in a bill of rights carries risks with it. What I look to is good law. Okay, if I can come back to this, this idea of the tension between uh, the political outlook of a legislature and, and a Bill of Rights. You, you used the example, for example, of an aspirational right to housing. So let us say it's couched in words such as everybody is entitled to quality housing uh, appropriate to their needs. Uh, that, that would be an aspirational right which would be developed through progressive realisation and the, the use of maximum resources available. Yeah. Um, maybe, or you might find that the courts would say that's such a vague formulation, it means nothing. Okay. Well, let's say it, it, it was that maximum resources available, and in comes a fiscally conservative government. Surely it's proper, absolutely proper for them to say that the maximum resources available, which was X, is now X minus. And the courts internationally, as I understand it, will not take a view on, on budgetary matters. The courts internationally have said they won't. Uh, that's one of the key principles of something being non-justiciable. I was trying to grapple with the prospect that because this was a constitutional measure, the courts would be asked to do that. Now, either the courts say, we're not gonna, it's not justiciable, we're not doing that, which is what Sir Declan has said, and Sir John. But even if you did, what is the court then going to do? Is the court going to say, right, well, in order to see whether X minus one is all that now can be given towards the fulfillment of this right, I need to know all of the secret information and the voluminous information to see what it would mean to Y if we stick to X, not X minus one. Just a thought, Sir Stephen, if we had that kind of two-part Bill of Rights and the second part was judiciable because it was specifics, but the first part, the preamble, was more aspirational, would it be possible to conclude the writing of the preamble with these rights are not judiciable? Just as you, you could certainly do that, but then what is the point of it? Well, it's more of a political statement that, you know, we're talking here about a four or five party coalition after every election in Northern Ireland. So it could be a coming together to make a common declaration. There would be motherhood and apple pie, arguably, you know, say we, we strive for a society that's you know, fair, peaceful, prosperous, concepts like that. I think it has a political value. I accept it has no legal value. Well, I don't mind a political declaration if that's what everybody knows it is. And I suppose, therefore, the risks that I see coming from um, aspirational rights and of rights are reduced if it is stated or understood that those general declarations of rights are not dismissive. That resolves some of the problem. But the point is, does it not also let everybody off the hook? You can have that declaration of general rights, you can have a statement or an understanding that's not just visible. Oh, well, we've done that. Okay.
So what you really need is good law. Yes. Yes. Okay. And, and, and you need good law that is legitimate law that everyone sees as legitimate, and that is critically dependent on the legitimacy of the legislative party's law, not on undermining it because it puts it in conflict or potential with something else. The, the other area I'd like to, to touch on briefly is the politicisation uh, of the judiciary, the, the fear of that. I'm going to resist asking you which of the two editions of the Daily Mail you preferred, if either. But, but go, go to this point. Is, is there a danger that if judges are seen to be having a huge impact uh, on legislature through a Bill of Rights and their interpretation of it, uh, that we get to the stage where, where, where judges are subjected to, to the same regime as, as Supreme Court judges in, in the United States, that you, that you have to come to the Northern Ireland Assembly and, and, and be agreed upon after cross-examination? Well, I think that would be a big loss. And I think that if you had uh, a written constitution where the judiciary was interpreting it in, a, in that way, that would be a natural consequence over time. People would be saying, people in the political sphere would be saying, right, these judges can tell us what to do. They can defeat the attempts at altered legislation by a properly elected government, by reference to a constitutional document. So we need to know who they are, what their views are, what their attitudes are. And that is what happens in the States, and that was part of the design from the beginning. But it's absolutely not what has happened uh, in Britain or in Ireland or in Northern Ireland. There are other examples, uh, more pertinent, closer to home. Look what's happening in Poland, where the Constitutional Court in Poland essentially has been, uh, almost all the judges have been flung out by an incoming government and replaced by people who are political place judges. That's a terribly detrimental step. Precisely because there was a constitutional court with which the incoming Law and Justice Party disagreed. Even in the UK, there are two inquiries recently announced by the Home Secretary. One into judicial review and one into the workings of the Human Rights Act. And uh, those follow on from real tension between the executive and the decisions of the courts particularly on immigration and asylum law. Uh, there's been quite a uh, development of academic thinking, if you like, uh, about whether judicial review of the power of judges through judicial review has gone too far. Now that's without having aspirational rights interpreted by the judiciary. That's where that is derived from the existing amplification of judicial decisions based on human rights act. I don't regret any of that. I'm absolutely with Sir Declan and Sir John. The Human Rights Act has been an advance. And judges have stood up to the executive. We've we've all done what we should do. But it's been misunderstood. And it now, certainly in Poland, but also in the UK, has become a bit of a target. There's a legal provision, I forget where it's to be found, but in the Immigration Acts in England and Wales, which sets out to tell the courts how to interpret Article 8 of the European Convention uh, in the application for asylum claims and in immigration cases. But that is 
legislation instigated by the executive interfering with what had been the judicially developed interpretive approach to the convention. That is a confusion of the category. It's very useful, Sir. Sir Stephen, thank you very much. Thank you, Chair. Okay, Mike. Christopher. Thank you very much for your evidence so far. Um, Sir Stephen, I'm mindful of the fact that you know, the 1977 Constitution of the Soviet Union guaranteed freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, freedom of artistic expression, freedom of family and health protections. I don't think anyone could seriously contend that the people living behind the Iron Curtain actually enjoyed those rights. So I think you, you um, no matter how utopian uh, a vision uh, someone might have, just putting it in a statement doesn't make it reality. I also think in terms of the concerns that you have expressed are concerns that I would share. If you go down the road of enshrining in law something that um, effectively is a programme for government, then why bother having elections? We should just have an administration rather than elections because we've now enshrined in the law this is what the government must do and, there are, and there's no wriggle room at all for the government in doing that. Um, so I think you've touched on two very important issues there. And then thirdly, um, I'm just wondering, it flows on from uh, what Mike has said, if you allow for a Bill of Rights, which is effectively a, a, a constitution, do you see the danger of schools of thought emerging in the judiciary as there have been in the United States where you have the originalists, um, people like former Justice Antonin Scalia who believes that the Constitution should be interpreted as the authors intended, or the, um, the non-originalists who take the view that the Second Amendment which you referenced is an anachronism from the 18th century in a time when America faced the real possibility of invasion by the Kingdom of Great Britain. So do you see the potential for schools of thought emerging within the, the legal profession if we go down the route of a written constitution? Well, let's take the example of the, uh, what I call the aspirational right uh, and the issue of whether it is non-justiciable. Hmm. Some unfortunate judge, and I do feel sorry for her or him, is going to have to be the first to interpret that question. Mm. Um, that will be uh, the subject of enormous academic comment, and it will be the subject of uh, very considerable discussion and appeal. Mm. And it is inevitable that, to some degree, um, there will be difference of views as to where that line falls. This is just just this book. It's just specific enough, or it's not. Mm. Now, the judiciary in uh, the UK and in, in GB and in Northern Ireland and the Republic has been very good at not being drawn into public comment. We don't talk about the cases that we have decided other than in a very general way. And I think that that uh, good tradition of not being drawn into public comment would continue. Yes. But over time, there must be some risk that judges would be identified as being more or less activist, more or less open to the uh, conclusion that something is justiciable or is not. Yeah. 
And if you marry that up with the beginnings of the war, the tendency to start selecting judges on the basis of their view, then you're into a completely different era. And an era which I think will be very retrograde and very much reduce the confidence in the decision of judges. I can't emphasize the independence, the importance of independence enough. Many of my colleagues, when they become judges, stop voting. <laughs> yeah. Um, I participated, there have been a couple of attempts to draft a Bill of Rights. I participated in the first one. There was a, a body called the Bill of Rights Forum. And uh, one of the reasons why the attempt to draft a Bill of Rights on that occasion failed is because activist groups effectively used the process as a means of trying to get through that avenue, that which could not be achieved through votes in elections. And I see, just in what you've said, you've highlighted again the danger of that. But, and I'm, I fear that this process may be heading in a similar direction, whereby that which cannot constitute a majority um, in the ballot box, people see this process as a means, as almost like a Trojan horse. And if we go down that road, I fear that the, if you do the same thing over and over, you're going to get the same outcome. So I think I want to thank you for your contribution because it has raised the, the, the issues that you're raising are not new. The, this has been the issue throughout attempts at, at getting a Bill of Rights drafted for Northern Ireland. Okay. Um, we've got Paula on Starleaf. Um, thank you very much. Um, it's been very interesting. I just want to pick up a point that Christopher raised around um, that the Bill of Rights Forum in many ways was um, hoped for by the lobbyists and campaigners at that time about achieving things that they could not realise through elections. And I suppose there are a, number of, a very small number of issues like that, but I think that a lot of the efforts of the campaigners at that time was more because they were frustrated at the slow pace of change at the assembly. Um, so just to pick up again on what you were saying with Emma in terms of the whole conversation. When you're right in saying that you, um, it would be better for us to look at a Bill of Rights that more focused in on civil and political rights as opposed to the socio-economic rights. But if we have proper political reform and that we notwithstanding the need for proper scrutiny, but if we had a faster system of actually addressing the rights of the different interest groups, whether they're disability groups or women's groups, through legislation and policy development, that we could probably achieve what society here in Northern Ireland wants, as opposed to through a Bill of Rights, an expansive Bill of Rights, sorry. Um, well, I think the first thing to say maybe is that your question is really not a political answer. And I am not a politician, so it's, it's a choice for you. <coughs> um, what I think, my response to it is to say well, two things. Firstly, um, whatever my own experience is, and having been a lobbyist, if you like, in the civil rights sense, whatever uh, you do, um, those who have focused on a particular set of problems and become involved in a focus group on them or a lobby group on them, will almost never be satisfied by the political process because the political process is one of reconciliation of competing interests. 
and it's always echoes in the continent. So that just an observation. If if what, if what the objective is uh, is to educate and set out a set of broad objectives for progressive politics, if you like, across the political divide, then to me the obvious thing to do would be to say. Um, we all agree with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, we all subscribe to the European Convention, we believe in the values enshrined in the UN Declaration of the Rights of the Child, think about the existing international instruments, and say we think that those represent what we would aspire to. Now, let's do our legislation with those things in mind. And that avoids the confusion. Well, first of all, it avoids the what seems to me to be potentially a waste of energy and time on recapitulating in a Northern Ireland Bill of Rights what's already out there by way of international formulations of aspiration, perfectly valid aspiration, and then you should say, well, we agree with that, or we agree with that. Now let's get down to doing good laws. Good laws which can be litigated, which will give rise to a remedy. And when you come to the specific laws, then you'll find the lobby groups, I suspect, won't be bothered by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. They'll be looking at your draft housing law, hmm. or your draft law on the rights of the child. Okay, thank you. I suppose, um, as Professor Dixon had said, around maybe just codifying a lot of those international instruments and um, declarations into almost our own sort of bill of rights, our own sort of single document here, and then not then getting so much worried about that, uh, worried about the sort of the socio-economic. So is that what you were saying there? Like you were just well, sort of in the Well, if you were intent on the Bill of Rights, that would be a good way of doing it, as long as you realise that those codified general declarations of rights won't be just visible, because they aren't. But also, if you really want an enormous effort that ends up with something that isn't just visible, setting yourselves to codify all those international instruments which were themselves the result of endless negotiation at the UN or within the EU. Boy, is that a job. And a lot of lawyers, if, you, if you're going to pay some lawyers to do that for you, there are a lot of smiles on faces around the bar like. Yeah. I suppose, I mean, more in the sense of not simplifying it, but distilling it down into one sort of set of principles, one set of, of laws within one document that then would be a guiding document from, you know, that we would sort of um, use as an educational tool to, to pick up on Sir Justice Gillen there and, and really just something that reads right across all our legislation, right across our our, our lifestyle and just some sort of document that everybody in the country would get behind and that's why we've talked to like the, the committee around a really, really strong preamble that sets the context for it. Well, I just think that if you're going to combine all of those important international declarations and conventions into one document, firstly, with great respect, how is the Northern Ireland document going to be better than the content of all those things that have been the subject of all that work? Secondly, it's an enormous enterprise. Thirdly, the result is a set of values which are already enshrined in it. So, a forward to, or a, a political declaration by all parties in the assembly saying, we all agree that the values enshrined in this, this, and this are correct. You could do that in three months. If you're going to start combining them, then however clever the barristers in the bar like you are going to be, 
Either will be minor differences between the international instruments uh, and the version that you produce, and B, it's it doesn't it's not going to be the platform for any actual case that benefits any actual individual. So why don't you say we agree with the broad statements that already exist and we want to implement those broad statements in our legislation? That, did that not, I don't understand why that's... I, I do see the merit in that, but I think that um, there's the potential then for shifts in political you know, composition in the assembly, and again, it, it might not make it quite as timeless, but no, I appreciate your, appreciate your feedback. Thank you. Okay, I'm sorry I can't be more specific than that. Okay, can we go to John now? I see Mark has dropped off. Okay, um, thank you, Chair, and thank you, Ross, for your presentation. I just want, um, I can understand, um, as said in the terms of the previous presentation, the, the, the purpose of a committee, particularly this is committees to investigate ideas or to interrogate, and we want to come up with the best possible, at least some of us do, want to come up with a, with a workable Bill of Rights, uh, which does what it says on the ten in that sense. But we have to look at the history of this. The Bill of Rights was uh, committed to in the Good Friday Agreement, and the Good Friday Agreement itself was an agreement which helped our society come out of conflict, transformation, confirmation of a new beginning, a new society, where rights and protections of individuals have a stakeholder and an enforceable stakeholder as such, which brings us back then, how do you Ensure that there is enforceability on justice policy. Can I say that correctly? But so I was looking at the example of housing. I would maybe look at it in the broader sense. For instance, if the Bill of Rights was to say that an incoming executive or future executives would provide affordable and social housing for all, for those who require it, and that was in your Bill of Rights. And say, for instance, a minister, a housing minister came into place and was providing housing for one section of society, but not as much housing for another section of society, which would show that that minister did have resources, resources but was using them in a long, far away. In those circumstances, uh, surely it could be argued uh, at a court level that the minister was acting in breach of an aspirational right. I'm not sure it would. I think you would tackle that by saying there's discrimination. Yes. And a breach of a bill of rights. I don't think you would well, I don't think it would necessarily be a breach of bill of rights because the minister would say that I'm providing however many million pounds housing. Now, once the, the point of your question is a perfectly valid one, but it's not a question of the provision for housing, it's a question of unequal provision between one group and another. That's a discrimination claim. Yes, but, but the point I'm making is that it dismisses the argument that resources are the reason. So I'm not sure I couldn't turn around and say, well, I don't have the resources. You could prove that they do have the resources. We couldn't prove that they have the resources because what you'd be saying is you will the, the the that's the point, is that the constitutional right would be used to 
say you've got to use your resources publicly towards this end. Um, well, unless the constitutional right is going to be taking it to the point where you say you need to spend more overall, and once you get to that point, you're spending more overall on housing and less on other things. And that's not justiciable. No, but I'm spending as housing minister 60 million pounds in zone A, and I only spend 10 million pounds in zone B. Yeah. There's an argument there that you're not fulfilling your public rights obligation to provide uh, housing for the, housing for those in need. Well, I don't think that would actually fly legally. I think you would have to be saying you're spending 60 million over here and 10 million here. That's not a rational application of your budget. That would be either irrational policy or discrimination. But it wouldn't be affected by the constitutional right because you, in order to invoke the constitutional right, you'd have to say you're not spending enough overall. Well, it depends what the constitution says. Well, that's true. But if you're talking about the right that you've enshrined, a, a right to affordable social housing, that would be for everyone. That would be as a proportion of the budget. And in that context, if you're spending £60 million, because all these things have to be arguing out in court and clever or big witness papers and arguing it out, uh, a more clever policy. <laughs> Again, we go back to the fundamental. You, your, your illustration of the use of the right, as you formulated it, um, is involves a budgetary question. And that's classically non-justiciable, as the Chief Justice said. So the judge would be saying this is not for me. And if you did, if you did try and answer it in those terms, you would end up um, in saying you should be spending more on housing despite your electoral platform. Well, I suppose the point I'm trying to make is that uh, it can't be shown in certain circumstances that when you make a commitment in law, to provide social and affordable housing. And all of that has to be within reason. And, and uh, I, I think, it has, as has been shown in other international examples of our particular case in South Africa, where the, the, the Constitution was challenged by an individual who required urgent treatment for a kidney disease. And the court ruled, no, you didn't have an automatic right to that treatment, and the individual actually died a few weeks later. It's quite uh, harming case in that sense, but the law the law rules as the law rules, and says, no, hang on, that's not the purpose of, of this uh, article of the Constitution or the Bill of Rights, uh, and the gentleman didn't get access. But, but the point I'm trying to make in my case is this, that if you do have resources, uh, you have to be seen to be used in a fair and equitable manner, but they're not being seen to discriminate against the citizen because of their ethnicity, their religion, the received political point of view. Although there is currently, of course, equality legislation, which you probably to course other. But it was back to my original point. The purpose of a Bill of Rights was a new beginning of society to protect minorities from the majority and to ensure that everybody has a state has a stakeholder in society. So that's the purpose of the Bill of Rights in my mind. Well, I, I completely agree with the aim and the object, and I understand that may be the purpose in your mind. My point is, I don't think it's effective, 
And I think you've already got the tools, because if you, if you do have a case where the resources are distributed unequally, um, then you've got a law, you can deal with that. You, you invoke the discrimination law. And the, the, the danger of becoming entangled in a constitutional right is that it just blurs the discrimination which you're already dealing with. Does it, and this is not a legal question or a political question, but does the Bill of Rights uh, not then set uh, a change of attitude or help set a change of attitude of society where society starts examining itself in a different way, where we have, for want of a better term, a movement for which we, 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 we judge ourselves against, this is the society we want. Some of it will be aspirational, some, some of it will be subject to law. Uh, but this is the sort of society we want. This is the principles upon which we live. Now, I think the examples you used earlier on are quite valid. If, in the sense of if an administration is in that is tied to budgetary cuts, they may come in and do that. But surely then, if they want to come in and do that, I guess a certain set of principles, legally enforceable principles, they have to change those legally enforceable principles first and then move on to what they want to do. But I think that in terms of the Bill of Rights, doesn't, in your opinion, you may not have any opinion on, set a new, set, a new standard for society? I don't think that's impossible, but I think the trouble is that the expectation being loaded on it, aside from all the difficulties about justiciability and about the implication of what it would mean for judicial decision making, several that to one side, of course, I think we had a Bill of Rights that said, we all agree, this is how we want to proceed. That will have an educative effect. But you can do that. Because really what you're talking about is a political consensus by everyone that we want to do, do the best we can to enshrine a standard of living and approach that is equal and so on and so forth. You can do that without a Bill of Rights. You can do that with a lot more easily, it seems to me, and without the risks by agreeing that, in, that we all agree we will adhere to this and that and the other existing declaration. We all agree, for example, that the rights enshrined in the European Convention of Human Rights, which didn't exist at the time of the Good Friday Agreement, it's already existed, but it wasn't important. If all the parties in Northern Ireland say, we agree that we all want to implement the rights under the Convention and the rights of the Trinity, fine. But I don't see myself how the process of getting to a broad general declaration in the Northern Ireland Bill of Rights really adds to that. And I think it's got the downsides I tried to point out. Okay, thank you. All right, John. <laughs> so Stephen, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. We've taken up quite a quite a bit of it with the, the question and after no, the presentation. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, the, the conversation, the back and forth is always useful. So thanks very much uh, for, for your time and uh, I'll, I'll let you leave now. Thank Happy you Christmas. Thank you. Thank you. So we can give Sir Stephen. Okay. So uh, we can now move on to chairperson's business and we don't have any. Um, agenda item five, the draft minutes, if everyone is happy to agree them. Intent, yes. Yep. Um, matters are raising, we don't have any matters are raising. Um, at 
Item 7 of the pack, you'll find we've got correspondence from the Executive Office in relation to the letter. I think Paula has dropped off now, but the, the letter that Paula had suggested we send um, regarding the experts panel. So we've just, just got a, a memo back saying that this has still been worked on, basically. Um, and then we have another letter that came in via table papers. People should have got it mm. yesterday or the day before. So um, I think the clerk was going to um, go through some of the, the points raised in that. Uh, thank yeah, thank you, Chair. The letter from the Human Rights Consortium. Um, I think I can address most of their concerns. So if, if you're content, Chair, I'll just go through each section in the letter. Uh, so the consultation period is, uh, is the first one they've outlined there. Um, I think it's important just to clarify the Assembly and its committees are actually not public authorities for the purposes of Section 75. Um, you know, and this is not really a public consultation in the usual sense. It's a it's really a call for evidence to support an inquiry of the Assembly um, of an Assembly Committee. Um, this is good practice, of course, the Equality Commission guidance. So, of course, when stakeholders raised the extension, brought it straight to members who agreed the extension to 12 weeks. Uh, on engagement, the letter um, it suggests that we haven't had public events or workshops to prepare people for the consultation, and we haven't tried to reach out to Section 75 groups. Um, in fact, working together with Assembly Engagement, as you're aware, Chair, we've actually conducted quite significant engagement to date, and it's ongoing. Uh, so we had a pre-consultation workshop with groups across the Section 75 categories, and that informed our approach to the consultation. Um, engagement hosted, it was actually the first ever virtual launch of an Assembly Committee inquiry. Um, and some members attended this. We, had over, we invited over 2,000 organisations to attend that virtual launch, um, and the, the consortium attended both of those events, actually. Um, and we took feedback from that event to, to members, and that led to changes in our approach. Um, you know, for example, we've developed a lot of content to try and support people in um, filling out the consultation and answering the survey. We have uh, lots of Facebook content and ads, which has reached 40,000 people. Um, Twitter, our Twitter content has been viewed by um, 109,000 people, so lots of reach there. Um, as members agreed, of course, in the survey, we asked for Section 75 information from respondents, um, and we're monitoring that equality data to try and um, look for underrepresentation and, and target where, where necessary. And we're planning a series of stakeholder events, as members are aware, um, which we can look at doing across Section 75 categories, and that's something members could discuss. There's lots of other examples as well. Engagement are working hard on this, and they have a dedicated member of staff at the moment on that. If I go on to the next one, accessibility, um, and the letter raises concerns about the accessibility. Um, it says that the survey is only available online. Um, Chair, you'll recall the video that you made noting that the survey is available in paper format and by telephone, and engagement are sending out a lot of paper copies. They um, have conducted many surveys over the phone. They take paper copies out on visits and so on. So, um, and further alternative formats are available on request. We, um, Disability Action reviewed the survey just to sure, ensure it was accessible to disabled uh, people. I've served in Landon Page and survey itself, lots of, of content there, links to the written submissions and so on, so people can find out more about it. Um, and looking at, if I look at the responses to date, we've had 480 responses, which is a really good number. We're halfway through the consultation. Um, looking at the open-ended responses, it wouldn't suggest to me that people are having great difficulty with this and um, seem to be grasping the, the meaning of the questions. 
Um, in relation to older people, uh, our initial engagement with stakeholders did raise concerns about their participation and members had, had noted this as well. So engagement have, been, have developed a separate approach in conjunction with AHNI uh, to support their participation. So they're briefing the consultative forum, issuing hard copies to day centres and so on. Um, and then the letter talks about children and young people and the members will agree. We spoke to the Nikki um, Youth Panel and took their advice, which was the survey was perhaps not the most appropriate way to deal with this. So we are doing a series of focus groups with schools, um, education other than at school and so on. Um, as well as that, you know, we've based on some further feedback from AGNI and others, we're sending out additional introductory materials with um, when we're promoting the survey out to groups and so on. And the consultation was mentioned in Good Morning Ulster. We've got platform pieces going into newspapers and so on, so we're just trying to promote it across multiple platforms. Um, there's a discussion there about questions as well. Um, the question about in, the word enjoying human rights, um, you know, that's taken from an Ipsos Mori Global Survey on Human Rights, um, which is 28 countries, 23,000 respondents. So should be quite well understood. And looking at the open-ended responses, the concerns I don't think are being borne out. I think people are grasping the, the meaning of that question. Um, there's a note there about including the words, what, if at all, you know, is that a question that's leading? Um, what's just really survey practice doesn't really presuppose one or the other outcome. Um, I was looking back actually over the Human Rights Consortium previous survey in 2011, and they had asked how important or unimportant do you think the Bill of Rights is? So that's similar, you know, it's not presupposing one or the other response. So that's really what's behind that question. Um, the context of the consultation, um, members will note that the Belfast Agreement is directly referenced in the word that members agree, Chair. Uh, our video content highlights the, the decades of discussion and so on, and the historical agreements that talked about the Bill of Rights and discusses the, the long history of this work that have, has taken place prior to this committee. And respondents can also link across to the evidence, you know, from the likes of CAJ, Equality Coalition, Human Rights Commission, and so on, who've referenced all of that work as well. So, Chair, just to conclude, I hope that helps address the consortium's concerns. We're just halfway through this consultation. There's going to be a big push by comms and engagement over the next six weeks, lots of social content and ads, we've got press releases, focus groups, uh, stakeholder events upcoming. Um, what I would say, assembly engagement and communications would be more than happy to come and speak to members if like further information on the approach or if you'd like to look at ways in which we can engage. You know, if, if, if there's a concern around maybe these are difficult concepts to understand, um, an option would be, which is something we have had in the back of our mind, but for after the survey, would be around focus groups, workshops, where you could explain those concepts and get into a more in-depth discussion around it. Um, that's good for after the survey. The survey is the what, and then you can delve into those responses and find out the why. Why are people saying those things? Um, I would just say, Chair, just to be mindful of resource constraints, the engagement, they cover a lot of committees, all the assembly committees, of course, so it could end up being quite an extensive exercise, so it just may be worth speaking to them um, to get their views about what would be feasible. Thanks, yes. Chair. Thanks, Clerk. So I don't, I don't know what members' views are. I mean, I suppose I'm sort of, I know Mike, you're indicating that I, I suppose I would have the, the feeling that given that the remit of this committee is to consider the creation of a Bill of Rights, I would have concerns that the Human Rights Consortium are sending us a detailed list of issues with our consultation. Um, I don't know what other people think in terms of the action out of this. Well, I have two issues with, with their letter, Chair. The first is that I think it's entirely contradictory 
to on the one hand say we've done nothing to prepare people for what's coming, but on the other hand to make very clear they've been at it for, for decades. But the real thing is, um, I, I think that the letter is consistently inaccurate in its assertions. And as the clerk has just pointed out, with a very long list of corrections. So I'm, I'm sorry she's had to do that, but having done it, I think we should go back robustly uh, with that list of corrections. I absolutely agree with that. I, I think at the end of the day, we're not a standing committee of the Assembly, we're an ad hoc committee. That brings with it its own limitations. But uh, I mean, I do not think it's fair to say that effort has not been made to engage groups and engage individuals. And um, I think even, I mean, obviously, Facebook and what have you works on algorithms. Every other day, I'm getting an advert popping into my Facebook uh, feed saying to me, you know, we're consulting on a bill of rights. So, I mean, obviously, I'm an elected You're searching for the right things. <laughs> Yes, it's not adverts for Lego. Well, it is actually adverts for Lego as well at the minute. But um, you know, the so the people that would be most likely to be engaged on these types of issues are being reached. And I don't think that I think Mike's right. I don't think that the criticism. No, I'm. T I'm I would take fair. that board. I just I'm concerned with everything that the clerk has laid out and, and the points that you're making. I'm concerned that. Whilst you know that it, we don't want this to be one-sided, whilst we think maybe that engagement has happened and that you know pre-consultation workshops or whatever, but if, if the the groups who are involved in this on the ground don't feel that, then well, have the human rights consortium, have the human rights consortium presented to the committee? I can't remember. They have. Yes, yeah, they have. I don't know if you were there, Kevin, Kevin Hanratty and Professor McCrudden. Right. Yes. Okay. But. I mean, he, he says they represent 160 groups, but do the 160 groups endorse the letter that he wrote? Yeah, I, I don't know. We we you haven't went back, but I, I just know that the the time that we had the virtual launch, I don't know if you were there that evening. I don't think you were. Um, the several of the people now kept dropping in and out. I think you dropped in and out too, Clerk. And there were issues raised that yeah, there were issues raised that evening and they were all pretty much the same. They had problems with the questions, they had problems with the accessibility, they had problems with the time frame. I'm just concerned. John, are you looking at it? Yes, please. Look, I, I, I think there's obviously genuine concerns uh, from the Human Rights Consortium. I don't think we need to go back to the robustly or go into conflict with any of the groups out there. Uh, I, I would prefer that we did stall until uh, we were able to uh, clarify or rectify whatever the case may be. Uh, but I don't think that's the move of, of the majority of the committee just, just reading the room. And I think if we were to go back to the Human Rights Consortium and clarify, and if the clerk was to put in writing or her responses, which is provided the committee with there, that may help uh, the situation, may uh, illuminate to, to the Human Rights Consortium the process the committee has been involved in. But I think if we're going to be successful in this process and, and, and keep engaging open with the sectors out there, uh, we do have to take seriously concerns really the Human Rights Consortium. As I said, I would like to stall, but I don't think that's going to be the mood of the room, just looking uh, and reflecting on some of the comments thus far. So if we were to respond uh, uh, to the consortium, clarifying what we've done thus far, and let's see what happens. Okay, well then I'll, I'll rephrase. Um, 
withdraw robustly. But I think we should go back factually and say, here's what we've done, here's what we're planning to do. Does that address your concerns? Something like that. People happy with that? Yeah. Happy with that, John? Yeah. Yeah, I don't see the point in falling out with anybody, but but I think it is just so factually inaccurate that it can't be left. I think I think as it doesn't matter what you do, engagement and dialogue is always helpful. So if there's been, you know, miscommunication or misunderstanding or there's, you know, something that, you know, on our side of things looks like it ticks the boxes but on the group side doesn't I think it is quite premature in this process to send such a critical letter, um, you know, given the fact that you know, the process that we're currently in, and we're in a pandemic, everyone recognises mm. that, certainly. If this was normal times, we would have various types of events around the country and we'd be hosting things here. You know, So I think all that needs to be taken into consideration and clearly hasn't been. So I do think it's quite premature. But obviously endorse the, the suggestion that Mike has made. Maybe that's that maybe the that's comments the, that Caroline has clearly been able Caroline to. Caroline and her team are working very, very, very yeah. hard on this, and, and I think we need to defend. I think it's. On, I think I do think it's unfair at this stage to be so critical. Maybe if the best if, efforts are being made. Would you, what you've said there, Michelle, around the pandemic and the, sort of the practicalities of the time that we're living in have created sort of shortcomings, not deliberate, but just the realities of 2020, maybe then it would be beneficial to, to look at doing something when, when things open up again that we can. It's looking like it. Can I propose that, that Caroline drafts a letter along the lines of all the information she gave us? Yeah, yes. And, and then poses it as a question, you know, does that address your concerns? Or yeah. you? And if not, we'll certainly engage. Everyone's happy? Grant. I'm Okay, okay. So let me see what else do we have. Got the going between the two. So the forward work program, is everyone happy to endorse that? Yep. Does anyone have any other business? Um, no, just say Merry Christmas. Christmas. Same to you. Same to everyone. Alright. So under the 